Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I'm a sports nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Hey, this is Phil Stevens. I'm powerlifter, strength coach, run strength guild, and I'm heading down to another meet today. We've got lifters in Kansas City and Milwaukee. Wow. This weekend. Yep. You'll be in my neighboring states, so to speak, in Wisconsin. Yeah, Jeez, yeah. land there. <laughs> yep. <laughs> this is Dr. Mike T. Nelson, a faculty member at the Kerrigan Institute, owner of Extreme Human Performance, and creator of the Flex Diet Certification. Hello, this is Kyle Dobbs, owner of Compound Performance Consulting and Training. Okay. Awesome. All right. We are going to get to Kyle in just a moment. We have two pressing listener mails here. There are questions about dietary supplements, actually, uh, across the board. Um, this first one is from Aaron. He says um, the title is ATP and HMB. Uh, hey, guys, uh, have you any experience using these two products together? If so, what did you think of it? I hope all is well. Thanks, Aaron. Um, I actually pulled up a paper from 2012. It's, it's from the Journal of the International Society of Sports Nutrition on ATP supplements. I mean, to me, it sounds almost childishly s- simple. You know, like, oh, I'll eat ATP and I'll have more cell ATP, you know, more cell energy. But, you know, it kind of works with creatine, so I didn't want to poo-poo it entirely. And I took a look. Um but alas, this is from Arts and Colleagues, A-R-T-S, again, from J-I-S-S-N. Oh, and by the way, we're going to have the, the founder of the International Society of Sports Nutrition, uh, Joey Antonio. Uh, Dr. Antonio will be on in January, so he's always fun to talk to. Oh, yeah. Um, okay, but the title of this is Adenosine 5-Prime Triphosphate, or ATP. Supplements are not orally bioavailable a randomized, placebo-controlled crossover trial in healthy humans. So that's a very tight design. I think some of our listeners know that. Uh, The background here, nutritional supplements designed to increase ATP concentrations are commonly used by athletes as ergogenic aids. ATP is the primary source of energy in cells. Uh, So they took eight healthy volunteers, again, with the crossover approach. So they tried the different um, administration methods in this case. Uh, with some wall shout in between. Um, participants were given in random order single doses of 5,000 milligrams of ATP or placebo to prevent degradation of ATP in the acidic environment of the stomach. The supplements were administered by two types of pH-sensitive enteric-coated pellets, let's see, um, or by nasoduodenal tube. So that's hard. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. <laughs> so they, in other words, they went right down into the first stage of their intestines, everyone. They kind of bypassed the, you know, that acidic stomach environment altogether. Um, obviously not something you would do <laughs> in order to get maximum ATP absorption in um, free living people. Blood ATP and metabolite concentrations were then monitored by HPLC for 4.5 hours with the nasoduodenal tube and for seven hours with 
Pellet Administration uh, results. ATP concentrations in the blood did not increase after ATP supplementation by enteric-coated pellets or by ND tube. Uh, in contrast, concentrations in the final catabolic product of ATP, or uric acid, were significantly increased compared to placebo by 50% uh, after administration of the pellets and the tube. Uh, let's see. Conclusions, a single dose of orally administered ATP is not bioavailable, uh, and this may explain why several studies did not find ergogenic effects of oral ATP supplementation. But then, they, you know, they, they go on to say, basically, it's curious that there were increases in its metabolite, uric acid, uh, which suggests the ATP might have been absorbed, but sort of quickly, you know, metabolized, you know, uh, down to its waste product, if you will, the uric acid. So uh, kind of confirmed, and I guess the title spells it out, doesn't it, that, <laughs> that they're not orally bioavailable. The HMB thing is a can of worms. Uh, I can only give my personal opinion, and I don't know what, uh, you know, um, Mike or Phil or any of us think about this, but I prefer just leucine. Always did. I mean, I read about leucine, oh, my God, in the 90s for the first time as a protein synthetic trigger, I think. And um, I just never saw that much of a need for HMB. Um, initial findings on HMB as a protein synthetic or anabolic agent uh, initially looked intriguing, and then other labs weren't finding much with it, and I'm doing this from memory. Um, but then there was sort of a renaissance. Uh, you know, there were different forms of it, uh, I don't know, maybe about 10 years ago. And, Mike, you, you probably remember more of this than I do. Yeah. But, and they tried – it was sort of this renaissance or this resurgence. I still wasn't that impressed. Um, HMB, of course, being sort of a downstream metabolite of leucine. So, Aaron, my quick answer to this is I don't know – what the idea is using them together, but I'm not a huge fan of either, um, honestly. But that's that's my personal opinion, again, along with a little bit of science. Mike, any thoughts on ATP or HMB? Yeah, I'll try to make this relatively short. Um, the data I've seen on ATP is just not that impressive. I mean, they've tried that back in the mid-90s even. I remember sitting in an exercise physics class since once and asking the professor, I'm like, why don't we just take ATP then as a supplement? He's like, well, they've tried that. doesn't really seem to get, you know, very far, you know, very similar to the study you mentioned. Um, HMB has been around for a long time. The patent is the main thing. The researchers supporting that tend to be positive when they were supported by that and not so positive by other labs. Mm -hmm. The free acid version came out when HMB calcium went off patent. So it looked like it was probably an attempt to, try to have a different form that they could patent in terms of his question there is one study that looked at that you can look up it's called the interaction of beta hydroxybutyrate free acid and adenosine triphosphate muscle mass strength power and resistance trains individuals uh, the lead author there was ryan lowry no relation to lonnie lowry yeah uh, that was from uh, jacob wilson's lab this is in jscr 2016 the conclusion of that was they said that uh, strength gains after training were increased in the HMB free acid ATP supplement subjects by 23.5%, mm. which is astronomically insane. Yeah. <laughs> um, and part of me wants to believe that because that would be really cool. But 
that study hasn't been replicated. There's even, you can look in the literature, it goes back and forth. There was a, another one that uh, Stu Phillips was one of the main authors on. It said discrepancies in publication related to HMB free acid and ATP supplementation. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, Wilson, the main author, responded back to that. So there's just no other supporting data to show that with any supplement that we've had, excluding possibly testosterone, that there's anything close to that level of gains. Yeah. So I skeptical. Just no you know. supporting data either, and I, you know, part of me is like, wow, that would be so cool if we found something like that that actually worked. But even anecdotal, like you don't hear of anything else like that. I mean, and you guys have been around long enough to remember, and Kyle has too, the you know the pro hormone days, and mm-hmm. at least then there was you know pretty fair amount of anecdotal reports of you know people seeing gains and different things like that oh yeah or with this it's it's like crickets you don't hear anything no and if it worked that well lifters especially on a supplement that's mm-hmm. not illegal by water or anything like that man everyone and their brother would be taking it too so <laughs> yeah i just 20, that, yeah 23 percent increase Right. Be, yeah, twenty three. Uh, it, it would not be on the shelves. It would be sold out. Hot damn. Yeah, it would be made illegal, of course, but <laughs> Yeah. I'm gonna be skeptic I'm gonna side with Stu Phillips on a lot of that stuff, right? I mean uh, I, I'm highly skeptical. Um I don't want to get into industry shenanigans, you know, oh, and, and how things go back and forth, but I, I I personally am gonna go with the advice of, of uh Dr. Phillips on that one. And, and I'm gonna remain pretty skeptical. Yeah, yeah. So that's my thought. I mean, the only time I think HMB may be useful is if you have the case of maybe an elderly person, for whatever reason, you can't use leucine, which I'm not sure why you couldn't in that case. But maybe, maybe there's something to formulation where it's more stable or something like that. I don't know. I don't know of any real big benefit, but possibly in that case. But like you said, Lonnie, I think just giving leucine is probably going to be much better and in the studies where HMB was kind of positive uh, from other labs, it was usually in the case of very low protein that it's being compared to. So, yeah, you compare it to low protein or low leucine, yeah, there might be a benefit. But in the real world, well, just give them more protein and leucine. <laughs> right, yeah. Okay, well, you had something else, too. You had a question about supplements, right? Yeah, there was a guy who wrote in about, uh, I don't have the exact email in front of me, but... Uh, one of them was a supplement called MAP, which I had not heard of before. And it's called the Master Amino Acid Pattern. Mm. And it looks to be claims to be better than protein, a bunch of other kind of interesting claims. I don't know anything about this company. I don't have any disclosures or anything with them. But uh, they said that it's a dietary protein substitute that contains a Master Amino Acid Pattern a unique pattern of essential amino acids in a highly purified form of crystalline. So I actually pulled the patent, which they do appear to have an actual legitimate patent on it, which again, for listeners, all patents are public knowledge, so you can go look that up yourself. It doesn't mean that it's super beneficial, it just means that it's unique and they've presented enough data to you know, be granted a pattern or a patent. It doesn't necessarily mean there's a ton of research on it. As far as I can tell, because I actually sat down and read most of the pattern or patent, it's real fun. It just appears to be an essential amino acid uh, with maybe a few other things in it. So, for listeners, you can 
get a pretty okay response in muscle protein synthesis. So stuffing amino acids into protein or into muscle tissue uh, from about six grams of an essential amino acid. And I don't know if that's superior to any other type of protein. There's some other data to show that, you know, maybe protein is even a little bit more superior. You know, Stu Phillips is probably the expert on that. But I, yeah, I couldn't find anything else on their their site stating why it would be superior to protein. Um, I mean, I have used it in the morning. I'll take some some collagen and some essential amino acids uh, before I do like a rowing session, just trying to get some stuff potentially for soft tissue. And if I have a lot of protein and I have to exercise right away, sometimes that bugs my stomach a little bit. So that was the only reason I was using essential amino acids, just because it doesn't seem to bother me much at all. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I can't find anything showing that it's superior. And like all things like that, I tell people just email the company and go, hey, you know, what research is this actually based on? You know, can they give you any research, not necessarily on their final product, which would be great if they had it. But even something that's just more supportive, even done by other labs. Yeah, so. I'm again skeptical. Uh, this is reminiscent of I don't know if you guys remember the name Pax Beal uh, back in the '90s. He was sort of a spokesperson. There was an attempt to sell a protein that was supposed to be based on human muscle tissue protein amino yeah. acid pattern and how it was superior. And but again, good point. I would request, like, can you show me solid evidence, right, reviewed evidence that this is superior to something like whey or casein or some of the known really high-quality proteins, right? Because it sounds intriguing. Oh, it's based on exactly the same uh, amino acid pattern that makes up human muscle protein. Uh, So I'll eat that. But that needs to be tested and compared so it's it's neat marketing but i never saw anything convincing so just like when i'm talking about just have the leucine in this case i would just go consume some whey protein you know i've never seen anything i mean as far as the protein quality whey is at the top of the heap on that protein digestibility corrected amino acid score right and listeners not to bore you but instead of just complete versus incomplete you can you can get more granular than that. And even amongst the good proteins, if you will, you can get protein quality with something like that PDCAAS. Um, so whey protein would be my recommendation instead of something like that because it's a known quantity, you know, with lots of evidence behind it. Um, yeah, and it's yeah. usually going to be quite a bit cheaper unless you've got some very specific thing you're using it for. And I know a lot of the formulators now are moving away from branched-chain amino acids to essential amino acids, mm-hmm. and there's some data to support that, and I yep. think they probably are a little bit better. But again, I don't think they're going to be superior to actually protein. So Right on. Yeah. Okay. Um, the other one you had, too, is something uh, called Energy Bits, which I've actually tried before. In terms of full disclosure, the company sent me some to try. They're these little green, kind of look like... Uh, rabbit pellets (laughs) um and i unfortunately didn't read the instructions so i'm like oh you must chew them they taste horrible but it turns out you're not really supposed to chew them (laughs) oh (laughs) so that was my mistake (laughs) they clearly labeled it i just refused to read it like aspirin right don't just chew that yeah (laughs) yeah pretty much Uh, but they're basically spirulina uh, and corella and those have some pretty good, you know, sources of phytonutrients and uh, micronutrients. 
it's about the only thing really in them. So, I mean, I think they might be all right if you're, you know, really short on micronutrients or you're in a place where you can't really get them. I know um, Dom D'Agostino used them when he was doing one of the missions for NASA, but I think that may be more or less you just can't pack a lot of nutrient-dense food with you, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? So, but other than that, I, I don't know. I don't think they're bad, but I'm not really sure if you're getting a lot of those types of nutrients on its own, if they're really going to be superior to anything else. But if you're super low on micronutrients, getting any form of that's probably going to help. I didn't go through and look at all their individual claims or, or anything like that. So, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, let's let's talk with Kyle. Kyle. So we have our friend Kyle Dobbs is on the show here today. And we'll get into the the topic of the day, which is going to be how to warm up properly for the big three lifts. Um, But before we do that, uh, give us some background on yourself, uh, Kyle, for listeners who may be living under a rock and haven't heard from you. (laughs) All right. Uh, So I I actually have a pretty stereotypical uh, fitness background. I was a collegiate athlete who was injured all the time. Spent a lot of time on the training table and not a lot of time on the, the basketball court. And a pre-med major, so I was a double major, biology and chemistry, and decided about midway through my junior year that I had no interest of going into ma- the, the massive time and financial debt that medical school involved, and uh, really started loving training, uh, more so than even my sport, um, <clears throat> probably because I wasn't all that great at it, and uh Went into, you know, graduated, got my CSCS, got a few other certifications and started working. And about a year out of school, I moved to New York with my then girlfriend, now wife, and started training for a corporate gym up there and had a lot of early success and uh, went on into management and had a lot of success there and went on into development and education and really started enjoying that. Eventually moved over to peak performance where I met Pat and the resilient guys and a lot of other great people. And, um, that whole thing kind of exploded. There's a long story there, probably too long for here. (laughs) I know Mike knows bits and pieces of it. Oh yeah. I was there right before it imploded. So that was quite the interesting meeting to do some (laughs) continuing ed in that place. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. To say the least. Uh, (laughs) So from there, I went on to uh, another company based out of New York where I was the the uh, training and educational director for their company, overseeing uh, multiple U.S. markets and a lot of facilities within New York itself. Um, and then about a year ago, just wasn't happy at all with my lifestyle. I wasn't seeing my family and uh, my wife and kids nearly as much as I wanted to uh, and was just really kind of stuck in the New York grind of uh, 12 to 14 hour days, including commutes and, uh, not, and just short weekends, emails all the time, phone calls all the time, whatever. And we moved back to the Midwest and I've been, uh, working here, uh, consulting with companies kind of across the U S and, and gyms and facilities, and then working on a mentorship program with trainers and managers on a one-on-one basis, uh, for the last eight to 10 months. Um, and really enjoying it. So that, that's kind of the short bio. Very cool. 
Um, tell us a little bit more about what your decision was to move from New York back to the Midwest, because I think uh, you know we have a fair amount of people who are lifters, you know, listening in who have you know very busy jobs and are probably contemplating maybe making changes. And we've got a lot of coaches and trainers who, you know, obviously usually have a very kind of chaotic type uh, lifestyle, but you actually picked up everything and moved out of New York City to, to somewhere else. So kind of tell us a little bit more about that process. Yeah. So at the time I was working with high level executive teams and working on not only training, but also uh, I was working alongside a behavioral psychologist. So we were running personality archetypes and blood panels. And then I was also working with uh, the guys over at Omega Wave uh, on their daily HRV scores and autonomics. And <clears throat> just looking at finding ways to decrease uh, autonomic hyperactivity, um, whether it be through intelligent training mechanisms or environmental coherence and lifestyle coherence within the workplace and their, and their actual lives, and seeing really good numbers. And about that time, I was really involved with that. I also went down to Costa Rica for Ben House's kind of first uh, seminar series down there, and that's, that's where I met Mike. Um, and I started talking with all these other trainers and business owners and just people I really admired, uh, from across the U S and, and really started, uh, realizing that I had become a client myself and I was actually kind of, uh, the turning into the people I was studying and, and working with from, uh, from a work life, you know, behavioral standpoint. And at that point that was that week was kind of the best I'd felt physically uh, in years. Um, just getting out of the city, going to a, a novel environment, but but also a very uh, relaxed and comfortable environment, and and realized that the the environment was the cause of most of my stress, and and the only way I was going to be able to deal with that, you know, coping wasn't going to get me out of the twenty four hour, you know, seven day a week situation. So was changing the environment itself. So I started kind of making a plan um, over the next year and just left, you know, up and left and made a plan on how I could kind of run my own business and consult uh, once I did leave and keep a lot of the contacts that I had and, and leverage my skill set to kind of run my own business out of a place that was a little more, um, quote unquote, friendly to, uh, to my psychology and physiology. And, uh, so far it's been really great. And, uh, you know, getting my kids out of that, out of the city lifestyle and into a, a place with a backyard and better schools. And that was awesome. And closer to family was also a really big plus for us. And yeah, haven't really looked back, but it was, it was a gamble, you know, but we've just, we kind of jumped into the water and learned how to swim and made it work. So definitely won't tell anybody it's easy. But it can definitely be done as well, especially with remote technology and, and things of that nature. Cool. And we'll jump into the topic of the day in just a bit. And do you think if you didn't have that week in Costa Rica in a completely different environment, almost the exact polar opposite from what you were used to, do you think you would have still made the same change that you did? Because I think sometimes it's hard for people to pull themselves out of their current environment and they don't really realize how much of an impact they have until they can go somewhere that's completely different 
And then now they have this sort of comparison within their nervous system to be like, oh, oh my God, I was really stressed. <laughs> uh, absolutely. You know, I, I don't think I would have had the awareness. You know, it's one, when you're in the, when you're in that lifestyle, the, especially in New York, it, it's a very unique place and it's, it's, it's its own bubble, you know, where everybody thinks no one else in the world works hard enough. <laughs> and thinking, you know, thinking about it from that perspective is now is, is laughable to me as well. And your the social norm is is to to grind, right? Hashtag grind. And if you're not doing it, somebody else is going to and they're going to take your job. And the expectations are through the roof from a work perspective, both performance and actual hours worked. And it's just the expectation. And everybody just kind of falls in the line and, and um, turns into a, a lemming of sorts. And you don't, you don't realize the situation you're in because it's the social norm. It's the environmental norm and you're just doing what everybody else is doing. And then you rationalize it very easily with money, um, a claim. If you're in a, in a, if you're in a position to like, we are in fitness to have followers and have people look up to you and be a mentor you know, so success and money really rationalizes the the amount of, uh, you know, autonomic damage that you're, you're potentially doing to yourself over that time. And it's really easy to look at it and and not see anything wrong with it simply because you're just doing what everybody else you know is doing. And then no one else anywhere knows what they're doing and they certainly aren't working hard enough to be as successful as you. Like, it's a really easy conversation to have with yourself. Um so yeah, I think if um, if I hadn't been down in Costa Rica and kind of experienced that uh, and and spoken and built that tribe, that I'm not sure I'd be where I am today. I think I'd probably still be working <clears throat> in the corporate world and um, kind of slaving away at it. Yeah, I mean, I noticed that, and Lonnie can probably speak to this too from doing my PhD. Is that in one way I'm kind of happy I did it a little bit later in my life because I had enough experience to know what was kind of normal and what wasn't normal. But I noticed a lot of the people around me didn't have any other different experience. And it's, it's very similar. It's, you know, you're in the lab pretty much all day and, you know, there's always somebody waiting to take your spot if, you know, you don't pass your qualifying exam or don't get funded or your grades aren't high enough or, you know, whatever that, that goes on. And, the good part of my case, even though I knew I was doing something that was probably destroying myself to a large degree, but I knew it had an end point and there was an exit. And the times that my stress level was just astronomical is when I didn't know what that exit point was. Oh man, that was, that was pretty horrible. <laughs> Not knowing if I was going to you know, make it or what the timeline was, but even having the same amount of stress and knowing, okay, I'm going to be done in November. Okay, he, my advisor agreed on this. It's June. Here's the things I need to get done. This is going to suck, but I know, okay, November, everything goes well. I'm, I'm out at that point. Or I think a lot of people don't have that end points. Like you said, there's no comparison. There's no awareness. And they go, well, it's just my life. Eh, this is just the way it goes. And off I go. Yeah, there's no control group. Right. <laughs> yeah, no comparison. Cool. Well, we'll take a break and then we'll get into the topic of the day on the other side of the break.
can't stop feeling Some of us don't understand How lucky we are To be living in this Hi listeners, this is Rob Fortress Fortney. I'm here to remind you that as the holiday season approaches and your thoughts turn to giving, we like you to keep Iron Rated in your thoughts. Over the past several years, there have been hundreds of listener comments hoping that Iron Radio stays on the air for years to come. Iron Radio is here for you. But as with any public radio-type format, the show is listener-supported. That's where you come in. For just $4 a month, you become a supporting member, keeping your weekly dose of education, experts, and gym talk flowing. Just go to www.ironradio.org and click on the $4 monthly subscribe button near the bottom of the page. Or... Click the Donate button at the right of the page for a one-time donation. You are the Iron Brotherhood and Sisterhood. Of course, not everyone can afford to be a supporting member or a significant one-time donor. But for those of you willing to pitch in $4 per month or $50 just once, we're about to sweeten the deal. Become a supporting member or major donor between now and January, and a limited number of you will receive a gift worth over $20. And we will never forget our existing supporters. Simply email me via ironradio.org and I'll send you a free seminar from Dr. Lowry on how to significantly and realistically boost your testosterone levels. Help your iron brothers and sisters who cannot pitch in but deserve better internet programming in our sports. And happy holidays. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world And create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, There's an enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. your weekly fix of iron radio in addition to being a popular institute on itunes we are also on email simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email 
you'll get a once per week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Hey, we're back here on Iron Radio. It's Dr. Mike T. Nelson, Dr. Lonnie Lowry, Coach Phil Stevens, and our guest this week is Kyle Dobbs from Compound Performance. And we're talking about ideal warm-up for the big three lifts. So why should we even bother warming up, Kyle? And about how long do you think a warm-up should be? Because I see people, like, I'm fortunate I only go to a commercial gym maybe once a week. But I go to a fair amount of places when I travel. And I usually just leave my headphones on and don't look at anyone. But, man, it's hard to miss a lot of the just bizarro stuff people do trying to get ready to lift what are your thoughts on why we should warm up and is there a ideal kind of time frame that we should look at absolutely yeah i mean i think um one i think the generalized term of a warm-up is is often misused and misplaced and you know i want to preface everything that i'm saying with uh i the amount of warm up that I think someone should should honestly do is the minimum amount possible, you know, in, in almost every case. And that's obviously going to rely on on context, uh, training ability, training age, and and goal. Right, your your warm up is always going to be differential or uh, determined by your by your goal itself. So, uh, for me, from a warm up perspective, like you're you're kind of dividing it into two phases. One is is opening up movement capacity if needed. And the other is potentially ramping up your, your nervous system and looking at motor recruitment. So you've got a neural side of it as well. And both of those are also going to be context dependent when you're speaking about the big three. Because I, I would consider um, specificity to be a, an important thing to also consider. If you're, if you're talking about powerlifting and you're talking about uh, lifting specificity and trying to eliminate variability from a movement perspective, your your prep is going to be completely different than if you're talking about a a gen pop client or a multi-directional athlete uh, in the big three lifts and uh, looking at trying to maintain movement variability while also working on bilateral sagittal strength. So your your prep's going to be a little different there as well. Um, from an assessment standpoint, uh, I do the typical stuff now. You know, I've I've done I've been around long enough to do. SFMA and DNS and now, you know, PRI and, and looked into FRC a little bit and, and some of the other major uh, methodologies out there and, and try not to be dogmatic to a point with it. But I'm, I'm really looking at uh, positioning and, and, um, and table tests for, for a lot of my assessments. So I'm looking at internal external rotation of the humerus, seeing how their scaps slide. I'm looking at internal and external rotation and, uh, of their femurs and then doing an overs test for extension and abduction. And most of the people that I see have, have pretty limited uh, abilities to do most of those things. Um, and so you're saying their general movement just kind of sucks. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, passively even, right. So, so I'm looking at passive, uh, assessments. So it's, so I'm really looking at, at that point, um, movement limitations or mobility limitations and not so much neurological limitations from a oh, yeah. from an active assessment standpoint. So more of a soft <laughs> tissue limit if we were to try to divide it into a different world. 
Yes, that, that, that would definitely be a good way to, to put it. So uh, really all the, all the preps I'm going to be doing is based off of that. But what I find is most people have very limited internal rotation. So that's something I'm usually going to be looking at pretty, pretty extensively given, the, given both squats and uh, deadlifts. And they have a, a really hard time um, moving the scapulas, you know, and actually protracting, retracting, and sliding uh, from a uh, scapular standpoint and a humoral standpoint for their pressing. So um, I look at position and respiration a lot with people, and and their their preps kind of really be dependent on what their limitations are. Uh, but generally, if if you're familiar with the the more PRI world. I put them in a 90-90 with, with abduction and reach. So what is a 90-90 for abduction for people who are not used to PRI terminology? So PRI is a Postural Restoration Institute for people listening. Yeah, so you're really you're using a bench or something that, that's about uh, 18 to 20 inches off the ground. You could use a, a, a plyo box as well. And you're putting their heels on it, so they're laying you know chest up. And they're 90, 90 degrees at knees and, and hips. And they're going to be squeezing a block or a ball between their knees, just trying to find adductors. And then lifting their lower back and, and hips, pelvis, off the ground, finding their hamstrings. Um, and they're just going to hold through respiration. So we're looking at uh, deep inhales and, um, and really deep exhales, trying to descend the diaphragm a little bit. And and holding that position through that that uh, uh, through the breasts themselves, and usually with that, you know, you you test it, you intervene, and then you test it again. You can free up a little bit of internal rotation there and start looking into more active style prep. So with that, you're trying to use a block between their legs to cause their adductors to do some work. You're having them push their heels kind of down into the bench or sometimes even pulling back a little bit depending on the cue to try to get their their hamstrings to do a little isometric work. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the other end of the hamstring is going to be up in the pelvis. So maybe you get a little bit of change of position of the pelvis so you've got more room for the diaphragm. And then you're having them hold that position while they're doing a hard inhale and exhale. Is that correct? That is correct. So that, cool. that's kind of the, the first one I'll do with people. And then um, I'll flip it into an all fours position with knees elevated and, <clears throat> and heels against the wall. And they're, they're kind of looking at the same thing. We're just adding a little bit more abs into it. So what does that look like? So they're uh, on their hands and knees. They're on the ball of their feet. Their heels are against the wall. And what kind of cues would you use at that point? So I'm still, <clears throat> I'm still having them squeeze the ball between their knees. And I'm okay. having tuck their hips into a neutral position, not into a, a kyphotic position, but just tucking their hips, not their, their entire lumbar spine. Um, so and then their I'm, back is quote unquote more flat. Yeah. And then I'm having them go through like a, what would be the equivalent of a serratus reach with their scaps. And so it. what does that look like if someone has never heard of a serratus? <laughs> <laughs> Fair. So they're, uh, they're kind of in that, they're in that, um, what would be a modified push-up position, and they are reaching their their uh, they're spreading their scapulas to push their their thorax away from the floor or their their rib cage away from the floor. Gotcha. So they're trying to 
maybe it's an oversimplification, but like uh, the cat camel type thing where you're trying to go from one position to the spine, but you're just kind of pushing your thoracic up towards the ceiling. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. With I mean, again, you don't want to bastardizing get... the cues. I know, but <laughs> uh, that's, that's totally fine. I, I think um, you know, terminology is also a huge issue in the industry in general. I think a lot of us talk about sure. you know the same things. We're just using different words and terms with it, and then arguing over semantics. You know, most right. of the time. And yeah, so you're you're trying to do that only. You're not moving through the actual thoracic spine. You're moving the scaps along the rib cage. Ah, so uh, okay. Hyperextension or hyperflexion of the of the thoracic spine you're just kind of like reaching for an object forward but you're allowing your shoulder blade to move not necessarily keeping it pinned to your rib cage correct gotcha um bringing this back maybe it's premature to ask but what's the reward for the lifter in doing these things uh we're looking at increasing movement capacity and again it's if if i'm looking at a lifter who's not trying to increase variability, so someone who might be a power lifter, and they're they don't want their scaps necessarily moving along the ribcage. They want to more pack them, and and kind of take advantage of that thoracic arch on a press. Uh, this isn't probably going to be that applicable for them, you know, pre-contest or pre-training. It might be something they do as a recovery mechanism post-workout. If I'm looking at a a general lifter who's just pressing for strength and hypertrophy. Uh, it's really looking at being able to move the scapula along the ribcage and the humerus for injury prevention along the way. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And I think a lot of people uh, forget, and I know I forgot this early on, how much of your shoulder movement, especially in an overhead position, should rely on your shoulder blade kind of coming out and rotating underneath. Mm-hmm. If you look at that joint at the top part of your arm, like the humeral joint there, just to use common speak, it's really, really shallow, right? And the people I've seen where you just put their fingers on their uh, scapula, the shoulder blade, okay, keep your palm down, slowly bring your arm all the way out and over your head, and the scapula just doesn't move anywhere, man, most of the time they've got some type of issue where if you can get that thing to rotate out underneath and kind of provide a shelf or a more stable surface, you're going to be able to support a lot more load. I mean, even if your goal is just to move the heaviest load possible. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that, I mean, that's exactly what we're looking at is increasing that movement capacity. And, uh, you know, the, the biggest thing that I've found is with a lot of the methodologies that are that are out there now is, uh, you know, packing the shoulders is a big thing from a, you know, quote unquote postural standpoint. When in reality, if you look at, you know, any sport we play or most of the movements we do throughout the day, your shoulders, you know, your, your scapulas are always moving. You know, so it's not necessarily a very um, transitional cue when you look at how people take the gym to everyday life. Um, you know, and it was something that I always tell people, you know, try to throw a baseball with your, your shoulder blades packed, right? right? Try to reach overhead and grab something off the shelf with your shoulder blades packed. And that's not, that's not going to work very well for you from just a general mobility standpoint. So people, what I've seen is people tend to get hurt from this training when they're, they're training with packed shoulders on everything. And then they go to, to actually do a, a dynamic movement of some sort in sport. 
and they've never trained in that capacity and they end up getting injured because they're not in a pack position. They're not in a trained position for them respectively. Yeah. One of the exercises I've had people kind of change a lot too is a, just a simple one arm dumbbell row. Like I'll watch them from the side and they're trying to leave their, you know, their scapula in that same position. Yep. And I'll even just take a super lightweight and maybe even block them up a little bit higher. And I'm like, okay, now just let your scapula come all the way out and just kind of drop at the bottom. I'm not going to load you up. I'm not going to have you do any explosive movements there yet, but just get that thing used to coming out away from the rib cage. Mm-hmm. And after a few weeks of doing that, and then you can start loading it a little bit more, even if their goal is just hypertrophy or total amount of weight lifted, you know, so far all their performance tends to go up because you're probably using a lot more muscle. You're probably making them more reducing the risk of injury and things long term also yeah i mean especially in that scenario you're actually allowing the lat to stretch through the row. right you're increasing the range of motion and hitting hitting endpoints you know so and not just relying on mid traps and and stabilizers yeah do you do any specific warm-ups phil for kind of shoulder stuff or do you see a lot of lifters who've got shoulder injuries you're kind of working around yeah it depends on the athlete and like he's talking about what they're doing and uh you know what we're working with you know if i got somebody that has shoulder issues yeah we're going to do more of that but in general our kind of rule is um your warm-up shouldn't take more than eight minutes Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. then we're in we're out i mean and it's time to train you know so (laughs) Uh, you see a lot of it now with all the rollers and frickin' jigsaws and everything else. Now everybody's taking, you know, they'll go in there and warm up for 45 minutes, yeah. assaulting themselves with everything on the market. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> and, they have a, and then they get a 15-minute workout. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it depends on, on what we're doing that day, um, who the athlete is. You know, I've got a lot of powerlifters, a lot of Olympic weightlifters, but then I also have a lot of sport athletes. Um, so everything they're doing is different from the way they train. I mean, I don't, I don't train my, my football players like powerlifters. I think it's just that that's not their sport. So, yeah. Yeah. It depends. It depends on the athlete. And, but definitely, I mean, like one thing I've had to deal with recently was I've, I've kind of taken over some of the training for a school and like their old way of doing things was like, okay, it's 80% day. You load the bar with 80% and go. <laughs> <laughs> so, it was that's teaching, what day it is. <laughs> yeah. It was teaching them, no, that's not right. You know, we don't, you're, you're a 500 pound squatter. We're not going right to 405 and okay, do your reps, you know? So, uh, just teaching them about general warmups and even specific warmups. So a lot of our warmups, especially with my power lifting and things is specific to what we're doing that day. You know, okay, you're squatting 700. We're going to start squatting the bar. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and just make sure everything's moving right. So, yeah. I mean, long answer, it depends. It it varies greatly on who and what we're doing. So, yeah, it's it's really, it's actually really difficult to talk about prep because it is, it is so subjective. You Mm -hmm. know, from a principal standpoint, uh, like I'm right there with you. I think if you're, if you're doing more than two or three uh, quote unquote mobility drills and it takes longer than, you know, five to eight minutes, you're, you're, ability probably doesn't match your task yeah and that's the biggest thing that i see is if you if you need to warm up longer than that it's probably not the right uh training for you Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i remember years ago when i was trying to do force myself to do more power lifting stuff and 
like no joke, my warm up was well over an hour because I was such a destroyed mess, and I could finally get to the point where I could you know kind of squat without too much pain then, and then my warm up in the squat was even longer, and that went on sadly for way too long. And what I realized over time was maybe I shouldn't try to force an asymmetrical structure into a quote-unquote heavy-loaded symmetrical lift because mm-hmm. I would leave, I'd feel pretty good, and the next day I'd wake up and I'm like, oh, my God, I feel horrible. Yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't necessarily the warm-up that was so bad. I think the warm-up in my case was an indicator of how messed up I was, but it was forcing myself to do loading that I thought was the best idea and in hindsight once I changed all the loading within a shorter period of time I did much better so I think sometimes because I'll even ask lifters I'm like I'm not as concerned about how it looked yes we want to use physics and check out our lifts but how did that feel Mm. and it's amazing and I'm sure you guys have always had this happen to you at some point where you do something and you're like wow that squat looked really good and you're like that felt like shit. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone looks at you weird. They're like, no, that looked good. And you're like, nah, it just didn't feel right. Mm. You know, and you can't really sometimes figure out what it is. But I've kind of learned over years to probably trust that feeling and maybe modify something or just try something else that day until it feels a little bit better. Oh, yeah. yeah, for sure. And that's, I mean, you're you're a tall guy too. It's like, yeah. Um, you can't always go by looks, is it? My my squad as a six four guy is always gonna look pretty terrible compared to someone who's five eight five nine. Yeah, mm-hmm. doesn't even like the same lift most of the time. Yeah, you find strategies. Like I mean, for me, it's like I'll use a safety bar. Um, I'll do heel, like heel elevated work just yep. to get the the positioning uh, more congruent to my needs and my femurs to actually kind of go where they're supposed to. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Do you have anything different you do in your warm up now, Lonnie, compared to ten years ago? Uh, I do more like systemic stuff, you know, just because my joints are shot, <laughs> and, and I and I and I'm old, and I just want to warm up, like both local and systemic, you know. Uh, actually, when you guys were using the one arm dumbbell row as an example, is it fair for me to think that what you're talking about is pretty powerlifting specific because? Now, this is my bias, right? That power lifters, they, everything gets so tight and compressed and yeah. and retracted. And when you're talking about dumbbell rows, one of the first things you would do as a bodybuilder is try to get mind in the muscle and use your lat and not make a r- dumbbell row all biceps. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, so, I, I, I've, again, my bias would be that people that are interested in hypertrophy and bodybuilding, muscular development, Maybe a little bit less of um of a problem with these things because they really are trying to stretch and feel the bottom of a movement and, and things like that. Is, is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay, it, it's funny. It's I go back to like looking at old school bodybuilding stuff all the time now. After you know all the education I've done for you know quote unquote like functional movement and, and things of that nature, and it's like you look at what these guys were doing and they really knew what they were doing inherently when you start looking at how they were performing exercises, the things they were speaking about, and it's kind of this full circle moment as you're watching the the old school guys lifting, and uh, that row is a perfect example of it for me. Mm-hmm. I, I just think as you age, bodybuilding is almost a form of um, rehab or prehab because of the way that we, 
bodybuilders tend to work full range of motion and get a stretch and you know be really cognizant of of the feelings you know the it's not just uh, to me it's like powerlifting seems so efferent to me like drive it up you know in bodybuilding there's a, a more focus on this this afferent aspect you know this like mind in the muscle i'm i'm trying to receive the sensations you know while i'm doing it i'm starting to sound like tom platts a little bit here but again with the old school <laughs> you know so yeah, I think the yeah you look at loads and tempo and actual working with full range of motion and, and focusing on the movement itself, and then structurally that's gonna, especially as you age, just having more muscle tissue from a hypertrophy standpoint is also going to be beneficial. Yeah, good point. Do you find as you have gotten older, Kyle, that even with yourself and with some of your clients, do you find you end up adding more kind of bodybuilding work? Because I know that's oh, one yeah. thing with myself and my clients, I've added more where seven five years ago i didn't have much at all even if let's say they're more of a, a strength or i've got a couple obstacle course racers where yeah it's more of an endurance kind of strength sport i just found that if i add one or two days of some easy hypertrophy even just an upper day and a lower day doesn't really beat them up that much their joints feel better you know they get some hypertrophy from it i just mm-hmm. find that the results were actually much better for most people than they were of just trying to really pound them three, four, five days a week? Oh, absolutely. You know, I I think four or five years ago, especially like in the strength and conditioning world, like hypertrophy turned out. Bad word almost. (laughs) Right. And now I've really been, I've been adding it into my own sessions for sure, but also for my clients because they like it. You know, and for me, it's it's all about adherence. And like you said, you've listed off plenty of benefits for it. I think it's very valuable. But even if it was simply for the fact that they like to do it, and then performing hypertrophy-style work would allow them to buy in to do the more, you know, quote-unquote functional or structural work that we would be, we'd be doing to address sure. their needs, uh, it's well worth it to me. Um <clears throat> I work with gin pop clients for the most part, you know, at this point and, and they're not obligated to work out with me or train with me. There's no obligation there. They have to want to, like, I don't work with collegiate athletes that have to show up to a weight room because their coach tells them to. And for me like that, it's not so much as an accountability issue. It's an ownership. And if they enjoy what they're doing and if I can address their actual wants alongside their needs, they'll stay with me and they'll adhere, they'll show up, they'll do the things that, you know, they're supposed to be doing. And if they enjoy doing it, they'll also start looking at lifestyle coherence and doing the things outside of the gym that are going to, again, benefit the things being done inside the gym towards their goals. So uh, hypertrophy is definitely something that I've added in quite a bit for and with really positive feedback from both men and, and women that I train. They love doing it and they love the way they look from doing it and like you said it doesn't beat people up like you might have a little bit of doms but you don't have joint pain you don't have like neurological fatigue you know it, it you, you don't feel like crap the next day you can go in and go lift again yeah. so yeah i know a buddy of mine here in the twin cities he's trained a lot of uh, pro athletes in the nfl and many years ago he was training them and he was you know very big into you know plyometrics and nervous system recruitment and you know for good reason there's good transfer to that too especially elite athletes and it was funny because he was saying that these guys wanted to do arm day 
And initially he's like, no, there's no real purpose for that. And these are you know pretty big jack dudes already. Yeah. And eventually he came to the conclusion of, okay, you do my purposeful training three days a week. Friday you can do a half hour arm day. Yeah. And he's like, his compliance, he said, just went through the roof. Yeah. And he's like, well, there's no real downside. He's like, I'm not going to overtax them by 30 minutes of arm day. And so he asked one of the guys on the Friday when they're doing their arm day, which they're all excited about. I'm like, well, how, why are you guys so excited about this? And the guy's like, my arm's got to look jacked on TV, bro. <laughs> <laughs> and it was kind of interesting because you sometimes forget that even a, a professional athlete who this is their career, they're getting paid millions of dollars. They still want to look good, you know, yeah. and there's, you know, he realized that his compliance then was so much better. He's like, wow, this turned out to be like one of the best things I ever did. Yeah. <laughs> you know what, you guys, I, I think it, honestly, there's the, to be fair, right? I mean, Iron Radio is about powerlifting, bodybuilding, sort of this beneficial blend, of course. Uh, I think one of the things a lot of the people who all, if all they did was one arm dumbbell rows or dumbbell flies and things like that, I really think, just from a hypertrophy perspective, they could really pick up a lot, whether it's Gen Pop or the hypertrophy only guys, just learning how to get set, get tight, and do a strength movement like powerlifters, right? How many times have you heard bodybuilders say, I really made tremendous gains by basically doing powerlifting for a year? Mm-hmm. You know, so there's really something to be said for the opposite uh, of this, too is getting set, getting tight, and really looking at performance for a while, I think a lot of the bodybuilder guys could benefit from that, too, just kind of going the other direction, you know? Yeah, I think it's novel stimulus, right? If, you, mm-hmm. if you've been training in the same arena for five to ten years, uh, you're you're going to plateau at some point a little bit. You know? And as soon as you add in a novel training environment and a novel training technique, you'll probably start seeing more and more uh, progress through that mm-hmm. and then back and, or you mix and integrate the two together. And it's like, you're, you kind of restart your training to an extent. Yeah. Yeah. Do you add more hypertrophy stuff, Phil, as like accessory work, I'm guessing at your place? Cause obviously you're training in more a uh, private facility. So compliance is a huge part. Yeah. It's like hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. <laughs> my job. Um, uh yeah, I mean we do a lot of of that. And like you said, I mean I'll give them their I'll give them their their dessert after they eat their dinner. You know, <laughs> type of thing. And I know they want that stuff and it's not going to hurt. And essentially also, I mean as a powerlifter, I think a lot of people forget that you know, strong biceps are a, a good bracing tool for your bench and things like that. So oh, I mean, yeah. they have their they have their their means. So, yeah, and even with my powerlifters we've moved to especially as they get stronger. You see with the elite guys, they can only handle so much heavy stuff. (laughs) When you've got, when I've got guys squatting 900 pounds, I can't push them. Okay, heavy squat day. Okay, three days later, okay, you deadlifted at 850. (laughs) Now we're going to deadlift 850. You know, so, Mm -hmm. yeah, we merge into a lot more. I'm doing a lot of like one one heavy day as far as squats and deadlifts and then one one more of assistance type day for, for that stuff. And same thing with bench. So it depends on the athlete and where they're at, but yeah, you got to give them some of that. And then my sport athletes, it's all over the place. You know, it's, it's more, uh, just general strength and conditioning. We'll have general, I'll have a dynamic move. And then after that, I'll have a, a basic strength move. And then, you know, we do lots of upper back work, 
All my people do lots of upper back work, usually mm-hmm. twice as much upper back work, twice as much pulling as we do pressing um, in any given day. And then some kind of conditioning. That's They usually all hate that. But it's <laughs> it's from five to fifteen minutes long to keep them in shape, and uh, I try and vary that as much as I can so they're not like, oh shit, we're doing that again, right? You know, at least it's something novel and new. Um, so yeah, I've noticed that with clients too. Like I've like a lot of the progressions I use. Like every time they're in the gym, they're almost doing some type of rowing, even like four or five days a week, and I've just seen that that seems to work really well. I haven't seen any increased injury or even overuse injury, usually the opposite. So well, I think with our current lifestyle, yeah, everything everything's in front of us. You know, yep. getting them to open their shoulders up and externally rotate and put their hands above their heads and things like that. Um, it's just it's a benefit today. So yeah, cool. Well, last question as we wrap up here. This is kind of a loaded question. I'm obviously very biased on this, but I want your opinion, Kyle. What do you think of static stretching, and do you use it at all? And if not, what would you use in its place? Uh, I mean, for me, when I look at when I look at static stretching, I look at you know what what is somebody's intent behind static stretching? Do they think they're actually lengthening muscle tissue, or are you looking for like a Golgi tendon response? You know, I, I think it's it's the people who find. Uh, Mobility gains from that are mistaking uh, neurological response with increased muscular length. You know, so I, I think it, it does have a place, right? I, I think there is value to it. I think understanding why you're doing it and how to apply it is going to be very important. Um, but like when I work with people from a mobility standpoint, especially people who have trained before. Uh, if they're not in pain and their mobility is not that bad, for the most part, I let them keep doing what they're doing. Uh, because, again, from a psychological standpoint, uh, it, it gets them in a place, if we're looking at parasympathetic shift as a, as a mobility concern or a mobility goal, it gets them in a place of familiarity. And so I'll let people static stretch. I'll let people foam roll. I'll let, you know, I'll let them do FRC pails, rails, and cars, I'll let them do PRI exercises if they know how to do them correctly. Um, and it's, it's quote-unquote working from them. Like, even if it's a placebo effect, uh, I have no issues with it. If they're in pain or they're restricted, then I'll change it up. Uh, but, but yeah, for, I think, you know, stretching has also become this bad word in fitness and, and kind of this thing that, you know, people stand on and they stand on their soapbox and laugh at people who are do- working on stretching. Uh, but I think it's it's the intent behind the stretching that really matters. So in a roundabout answer, I, I think if somebody thinks it works and it seems to be working for them, I'll let them do it. Uh, because me trying to change their mind might cause more harm than good. And um, even if it is, uh, I'll just try to educate them on why it might be working as opposed to why they think they're wor- it's working. Yeah, well, that's kind of my bias. I mean, most people probably know at this point I'm not a big fan of static stretching at all, but I think the context of it matters, right? So if a client tells me, hey, I'm doing you know static stretching-based yoga Tuesday, Thursday, and I feel great afterwards, yeah, in my head I'm like, well, maybe it's just movement. Maybe you're doing hot yoga. Maybe it's the temperature. Maybe it's the fact that you're just breathing and trying to relax for an hour that helps, mm-hmm. you know, because there's always multiple things going on but i think my bias just static stretching i don't think is that 
useful. But again, I agree with you that the context of what you're doing and what the person believes is happening probably overrides all of that. So yeah, I've lost clients before telling them what they're doing stuff. Right? You know, I think mm-hmm. everyone has. Yeah. <laughs> For me, that's not a win-win. Like I'm not, I'm not able to help them. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, and that's 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 problematic for me. So, I ch- for me, it, it, it's like stretching PRI, like all of these mechanisms, all these methodologies are really trying to achieve uh, a parasympathetic shift to open up movement capacity prior to loading. Right, that's what we're really trying to do with all of these. They're all taking different roads to get there. Um, and it, if somebody really believes it works, that belief might be the reason it actually works. Sure. And, you know, and that for me, that's important. It took me a long time to, to kind of uh, validate that within my own thought process. And I'll try to educate them along the way. I'll try to shift them into something that might be more efficient because the the obvious problem with stretching with most people is it, it takes too long. Uh, yeah. they, it's like foam rolling or, or SMR in general is they'll spend 30 minutes doing it when they might have been able to get the same effect through breathing in five and that takes away from your actual training time, you know, and, and that's that's something that I'm a big belief in with with any of these, you know, uh, corrective methodologies or, or movement methodologies is if you're if you're working on ground based movement correctives and you're never getting people standing, you're really only theorizing movement. You're not actually talking about movement itself. So. Um, stretching is kind of a, for me, that's one of those things. If you're spending 30 minutes doing it, we can find something better. If you're just doing a quick hamstring stretch because you really feel like it works and that's maybe what gives you the confidence to go in and lift or perform or whatever, um, we'll, we'll kind of look at it contextually and see what's going on. Yeah. Awesome. Well, where can people find out more about you and everything that you do? Yeah. I mean, Facebook, um, my profile, and I've got a complex, uh, a compound performance uh, page, and then on Instagram, I'm compound performance underscore, uh, and then the website itself is just www.compoundperformance.com. Cool, awesome. Well, thank you very much for being with us today, and for listeners, stay tuned. So next week is episode 500, yeah, and yeah. which is crazy and will be a retrospective of some of our favorite topics so you want to make sure to tune in for that and thank you very much kyle greatly appreciate it and thank you all for listening have a good weekend Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store. Uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for.
There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.